Well, I'm grateful for the time that our family had uh, last week to be away. And uh, this week uh, we are uh, in the book of Job. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we will return uh, to 2 Samuel. Uh, that is the plan. Uh, but this morning we're in the book of Job. We're looking at just a couple of verses in Job chapter 2. Uh, But our scripture reading, before we get to those verses, our scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 18, and then our sermon passage is Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. You'll remember that we were in the book of Job about five years ago, and this is uh, a passage I think that is... uh, that is beneficial to us all as a congregation. We, as a congregation, have had our fair share of woes over really the life of this church, throughout the life of this church. But over the past five to six years, we have seen and experienced sorrow uh, as well as joy. And so perhaps this passage and the sermon this morning will be of benefit to us as as a body as we remember to show love and care uh, to those in our midst who are sorrowful. So again, our sermon passage, Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, but our scripture reading, which we'll read first, is Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. Please give your full attention to God's word as it's read publicly. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now turning to Job chapter 2, beginning our reading at verse 11 and reading through verse 13, which is the end of chapter 2. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are thankful that you are not alien to our sufferings. You are not off at a great distance, uncaring and unknowing. We are thankful that your Son, Christ Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, entered into our suffering that he suffered in our place in ways that we as believers in Christ will never have to suffer. 
Lord, we pray that you would teach us what it means to enter into the sufferings of others. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us tender hearts, that you would fill us with compassion. We pray, Lord, for the blessing upon, your blessing upon the preaching of your word now, that you would bless the one who preaches, that you'd bless the ones who hear, that you'd give us all ears to hear your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now you will remember that Job is described in this book by God himself as a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. We read this about Job in the opening chapters of the book, and it tells us that Job, humanly speaking, is a righteous man. It sets the stage for everything that follows and indicates to us, it shows us that Job is not suffering for anything that he has done, for any sins that he commits. It lets us know right up front that nothing about Job's suffering is coming upon him as a judgment for his sins. He's blameless and upright. And it's for this reason, after Satan has just said to the Lord that he has been walking to and fro around the earth, he's searching for someone, he he wants to bring an accusation against someone in God's grand heavenly courtroom. After Satan enters into heaven, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? We don't know why God said this. We might prefer that God had not called attention to his servant Job. But think about if he hadn't. We wouldn't have this book. We wouldn't be able to to gain the tremendous insight that we gain from reading about a man who suffers as a righteous man. And we would be left to assume that all of our suffering in our lives comes as a result of a punishment for our sins. Well, after God says this to Satan, Satan attacks Job with everything that he has. God puts one boundary on Satan and says that you cannot take his life. But he leaves pretty much everything else on the table. And Satan leaves Job in utter ruin. His livestock are killed, his possessions are lost, his house is destroyed, his skin is afflicted with terrible sores, which might seem somewhat comical to us unless you've ever suffered from some sort of skin affliction, and then you can be sympathetic. But worst of all, worst of all, his ten children are killed in a horrible calamity that sounds almost too horrific to believe, and yet it's true. And all of this was done by Satan in order to make Job curse God to his face. That's what Satan said. He said, I will make him curse you to your face. And as a result of all of this, Job in utter misery sits down in an ash heap to mourn his terrible losses. And it's in this setting, in this ash heap, that his three friends come to pay him a visit. Now, if you remember anything about the three friends that have just been introduced in this passage, then you know that once these men begin to talk, once they open their mouths, they fail at being good friends of Job. They fail miserably. 
Occasionally, they speak words of wisdom. And you remember when we went through the book of Job five years ago, it took some, it took some real work sometimes to tease it out. Is, is this true wisdom here or is this falsehood? Occasionally they do speak words of wisdom, but more often than not, they attack Job with baseless claims that he must have done something bad in order to deserve to have deserved all of the calamity that has befallen him. They believed in uh, sort of a primor- primordial form of karma. You get what you deserve, and Job, you have gotten terrible, terrible things, and it must be because you deserved them. And because of this, readers of the Bible down through the ages have viewed these three friends in a very negative light, and rightly so. But if they had simply contented themselves with just showing up, with weeping along with Job as Job wept, with mourning with him, sharing in his sufferings as our passage this morning so wonderfully exemplifies, our views of these men would be quite different. They would be held up as examples of how to care for and comfort those who are sorrowing, suffering, in mourning. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to hold this thought in front of you. Jesus Christ shared in our suffering, humbling himself by taking up a body of dust so that we could live with him forever in glory. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ shared in our suffering, humbling himself by taking up a body of dust so that we can live with him forever in glory. Now, those of you in the adult Sunday school class, I promise I did not pay Pastor Keller to say what he said uh, about us being dust and being raised into glory. In fact, I, I didn't even know until a few moments before the Sunday school class that he was skipping some chapters to the last two uh, in the confession. And so this has not been coordinated by man. You can take comfort in that. The sermon is divided into three parts. The first part, a concerted effort. The second, sharing sorrows. And the third, seven days and seven nights. Again, part one, a concerted effort. Part two, sharing sorrows. Part three, seven days and seven nights. So let's look at the first part of the sermon. It's a brief point. Uh, Point one, a concerted effort. Verse 11 says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, this this harm that had come upon him, they they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now according to one commentator, and I agree with him, I think it makes a lot of sense, several weeks or probably some months have elapsed between Job's calamities, all of these terrible things that had befallen him, and the the arrival of these three three friends. Well, why is that? the, The commentator helpfully writes this. There must be time for the news to reach these men, for them to communicate with one another, and to arrange to meet one another, and then to journey together to us. And so by the time the three friends arrive... Job has been sitting in the ashes, scraping his boil-covered skin for months. Now, there's no mention of specifically how the news of Job's misfortune reached the ears of these men. But you know this. You've experienced it. It doesn't take social media for this to happen. Bad news travels far and wide. It moves very quickly in the marketplace where these men would have gone every day 
It was not only a place of commerce for goods and services. It wasn't only a place where you could buy your daily bread. It was also a place where news was exchanged. However the men heard of it, when they heard of this calamity that had befallen Job, they made an appointment together to go, and, to, go to Job and to comfort him. They, they set a date where they were going to, to head out together and to travel to us and sit with Job and comfort him. We're going to look at this more closely in the last section of the sermon, but the seven days and seven nights was the customary period of mourning in that part of the ancient world. And so these men had to plan their visit to Job, knowing that they would be gone possibly for a few weeks, depending on how far they had to travel. And if you've read the book of Job recently, then you know that even after that period of seven days, they were with Job for some amount of time to fill out 42 chapters of a book. At this point, they are functioning like the church ought to function. They know their friend is in need of companionship and comfort, and so they make a plan for visiting him. And they do so at great personal cost of time and perhaps money to be with him. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon today, sharing sorrows. Verse 12 says, And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Now this verse implies that Job's skin condition had left him so disfigured that he was unrecognizable, even to these three close friends. They came upon him, but they didn't know him. But then verse 12 also implies that when they got close enough to realize whom it was they were seeing, they then raised their voices and wept. It's not explicitly spelled out in this verse, but that seems to be the flow of it. They didn't recognize him at first, they get a little closer, they realize it's Job, and immediately... They weep. The verse says they wept, they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Now these actions of the three friends are somewhat of a corollary to Job's actions when he found out that his ten children had been killed. Chapter 1 verse 20 says that Job arose, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and then he fell on the ground and he worshipped. His first instinct there was to worship. Well, verse 12 of our passage says that they, the three friends, raised their voices and wept. Their crying was not the silent shedding of tears. It was vocal. It was audible. They were raising a lament because of the condition of their friends. These were not good Presbyterians. They wept aloud. They wailed. They weren't afraid to show their emotion. They probably wouldn't have fit in the OPC. The one thing in common between what Job did after his children died and what his friends did when they saw Job was tearing their robes. Tearing your robe in that day was a part of mourning the loss of a loved one. It was something that was somewhat of a convention. It was what these people did to to express their grief. Job tore his robe after he found out that all of his children had died. His friends tear their robes when they see Job. They see his distress and they join him in it. They share in his sorrow. They empathize with him. Tearing their robes is an indication of the fact that they did love their friend, despite how badly they're going to handle things once they open their mouths and start talking. And finally, in verse 12, we read that they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Now, this is a difficult one for us to understand. We don't know exactly what they're doing here. A person sprinkling dust on his head is fairly common in the Old Testament. One example is in Joshua chapter 7, verse 6, after the sin of Achan. 
when Israel was defeated at Ai, Joshua and the elders put dust on their heads as a response to the disaster that befell Israel. It was a period of mourning for them. They realized that their disaster had come as a result of some kind of sin within Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 12 also contains an instance where dirt was put on the head of a person, this time on the head of the messenger who had come to tell Eli the high priest that the ark had been taken by the Philistines. And there are numerous other instances where this happens, but the phrase in Job 2.12 is sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And that phrase is used only one other place in the Old Testament. And what it seems to indicate is that these friends of Job are identifying themselves in their grief with Job's dead children. What is dust? Well, dust is a reminder of the fact that it is from the dust of the earth that our bodies were formed, and it is to dust that our bodies will return in the grave. I was thinking about this in the adult Sunday school class, but didn't say it. I believe it's a fact that the majority of dust in our homes is dander, skin cells. So we see the manifestation of that when we dust our shelves or furniture. We are returning to dust even before we go to the grave. The dust put on the head, dust thrown into the air into which a person walks, is a reminder of the fragility of human life. Now, the only other place where this action of throwing dust into the air is found in the Bible is Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 to 10. In that passage, we read about the sixth plague that God sends upon the Egyptians, the plague of boils on the skin. Exodus chapter 9, verse 8 says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. The soot being thrown into the air in Exodus 9 is the agent or the means God uses to cause terrible boils, skin afflictions on the Egyptians who were holding Israel captive. Now Job, we need to think about chronology here, Job most likely lived around the same time as Abraham, who was one of the patriarchs. And so these events would have predated Jacob, Moses, and Israel's exodus from Egypt. In other words, Job was, uh, his life, he, he lived well before exodus and the events of the plagues. However, when any Israelite after the exodus heard the story of Job and of how his friends threw dust up in the air when they saw their friend covered in a terrible skin affliction, they would immediately think of the, th- the sixth plague. They would know the story of their people's exodus from Egypt above any other. And so it may be, it may be that God intended for his people to understand the friend's act of throwing dust on their head toward heaven as a symbolic appeal to God to bring upon themselves the plague that fell upon the Egyptians as it fell upon Job. If this is the case, then the friends are identifying with Job's suffering in a very intimate way. They are showing symbolically that they would take Job's sufferings and sorrows upon themselves if they could. But think about that for a moment. Think about that the next time someone you know and love experiences deep and profound loss or sorrow. We're not as symbolically oriented as people in that day were. We are in our own way, but in, certainly in different ways from them. But think of ways that you can show those you love. That you feel their sorrows. That you feel their pain. 
that leads us to the third and the final point of the sermon today. Seven days and seven nights. Verse 13 says, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Can you imagine? That that was not a prescription of a period of mourning for those people. It wasn't that they had to sit in silence. And can you imagine sitting seven days and seven nights on the ground, not speaking a word during that time? But they understood that Job's loss was so profound that to utter a word during that time of mourning would be almost profane. So throwing dust into the air with some of it landing on their heads was a way of symbolically sharing in Job's suffering. Then sitting with Job for seven days and seven nights actually was sharing in his suffering. I would not be able to get up off the ground if I sat on the ground for seven days and seven nights. Spending an entire week this way with their friend was most certainly a sacrifice on their part. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 was a reality for them. If one member suffers, all suffer together. We are called to take others' sufferings upon ourselves. These men were weeping with those who weep, as Romans 12.15 puts it. 2 Corinthians 1.4 tells us to comfort others in their afflictions just as we have been comforted in our afflictions by God. One of the reasons that we suffer affliction is so that when another goes through suffering, when another is in sorrow, we know exactly what they're feeling We can come alongside them and bring comfort to them. And in the next verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul indicates that sharing in others' sufferings is sharing in Christ's sufferings. And Paul makes that more explicit in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Jesus Christ was and is perfect. He is without sin. He, is, he fulfilled all, all righteousness for us. He did everything that His Father commanded Him, and not doing those things His Father prohibited. So how is it possible for Jesus to be lacking in anything, as Paul says? Well, the one thing that Jesus Christ was and is lacking and will be lacking until the end of days is the fullness, the completion of His sufferings. As the body of Christ, the church suffers. She is completing, perfecting the sufferings of Jesus Christ. So as you suffer for Christ, which may mean simply that you are willing to share in a fellow believer's sufferings, you are making Jesus Christ even more complete. You are filling up what is lacking in his afflictions. Now, brothers and sisters, there is great suffering in the world. We see it in a very pointed way right now. The giving of this church in response to what's going on in Ukraine and a desire to alleviate some of the suffering there, it was, frankly, astonishing. Your desire to give and to care and to see what the OPC has, has been given in order to, to, to give to our missionaries in Ukraine so that they can alleviate suffering, so that they can help those who are being displaced and driven out of their homes But we can't alleviate it all. You cannot as individuals, we cannot as a church alleviate all of the suffering around us. But what you can do 
try to help out your fellow man, especially when disaster strikes somewhere around the world, but you are never going to be able to end all suffering. It will always be with us in this life. But you can more locally and have a tremendous impact by doing it, share in the sufferings of fellow believers. Share the sufferings of your neighbors. You can visit those who are sick. You can seek to comfort those who are mourning a loved one who has died. You can mow the lawn, for instance, of someone who is overwhelmed, so overwhelmed by life that they don't know what to do. You can wash someone's dishes. And if you don't know what to say to someone who is suffering, you can follow the example of Job's three friends for those first seven days they were with him and not say a word. You can just go sit in silence with them. You can also, after a time, simply ask them what you can do to help and mean it and follow through on it when they tell you. And if you are the one who needs help, if you're the one who is in need and people are offering to help you, remember this, it takes as much grace to receive a gift as it takes to give it. To be a willing recipient of others' gifts, of others' efforts at alleviating your suffering. Why do this, though? Why extend yourself in this way? Well, we're commanded to by God. Simply put. But also, if that's not enough for you, Consider this. What if the Son of God, who was perfectly free, had decided not to enter into our sufferings, but instead had remained in heaven, aloof, away from us? Where would you be? On your path to hell. The eternal Son of God knew that we would be suffering. And he decided to do something about it. He who was very God did not count equality with God something to be clung to, but made himself nothing. He took up this form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ so identified with our suffering in the most intimate of ways that he became one of us. He suffered in all of the ways that we suffer, except that he did not sin. But he went even further than that. He suffered in ways that for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we will never have to suffer. He suffered in poverty and hunger. He suffered from sleep deprivation and physical exhaustion. He suffered the persecution of the Pharisees and the boneheadedness of his disciples. But he also suffered the wrath of his father. And he did so not for anything that he had done. But because he loved you. And he loved me. And he took our sins willingly upon himself when he died on the cross. He suffered these things for us. He suffered the anguish of alienation from the love of his father with whom he'd had the most intimate of relationships from all eternity past. But he also suffered his father's holy hatred for sin. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he did these things for you, you will never have to suffer these things. Never. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't suffer in this life. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be given the grace to go through your suffering, to get through, knowing that Jesus Christ is right there with you in it. 
If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the grateful duty then to emulate Jesus Christ and share in the sufferings of others because of what He has done for you. It doesn't add to your perfections. It doesn't make you more lovable to your Heavenly Father if you do these things. It's not what saves you. But out of gratitude, when you see the sufferings of others, you should willingly enter into them. Remember this. When you decide to go and sit with someone in their sorrows, the time for words will come. The time to speak the truth of the gospel in the midst of their suffering will present itself. But sitting in silence with someone who suffers is a great way to start out. Jesus Christ saw our suffering and then he suffered in our place so that we might be spared eternal suffering in hell. We in turn can seek to enter into the suffering of others, which, brothers and sisters, will ease their sorrows, will bring comfort, will usher in peace. By entering into the sufferings of others, you are bringing grace to those who need it. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we truly are thankful for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We're thankful that he freed us from enslavement to sin. We are thankful, dear Lord, that he set us free from hell. We're thankful that he suffered the fiery wrath of hell when he suffered punishment for our sins. Oh Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would make us so grateful for this that we would desire to show our love for our brothers and sisters and for our neighbors by joining them in their sorrows. We pray, Lord, that instead of running away from them, that we would run toward them. But we are thankful for the wonderful example that we have in Job's three friends as they did what many of us, perhaps most of us, would refuse to do. Giving up weeks of their time to sit with their friend. But we are thankful for the many examples that we see in our own world as we look at the great sacrifices of those who are fighting on behalf of their countries, who are seeking to defend themselves from invasion. We're thankful for the sacrifices of our firefighters to the west of us who are putting their lives on the line, entering into the sufferings of, of those who are on the verge of losing it all and entering into the sufferings of those who have lost everything but their lives. We're grateful for all of these examples, Lord. But more than these, we are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He did not remain distant from us. He was not. He is not aloof. He has great compassion, great concern. And He is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses and all of our sorrows. 
We are grateful for Him who is our great high priest. We pray, dear Lord, that out of our gratitude, we would desire to walk like Him, and to talk like Him, and to live our lives like He does. So teach us, O Lord, to be grateful, we pray. To the Lord Jesus Christ, for what he has done. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.